Well, whatever happened to the flood? Fashions come and go. About 150 to 200 years ago, this lady would probably have been in the very height of fashion. Now, if we look at fashions, say, in the last 30 years, very different. Now, the woman inside these clothes is pretty much the same creature. But the but what she is wrapped up in is very, very different. Now, if we look at a rock face, like this, for example, about 150, 200 years ago, geologists looking at this would say, oh, here we have got evidence of very rapid um, deposition in a huge amount of water. Now, if you ask a geologist today, he'll say, uh, he'll say, we've got here evidence of very, very slow deposition over millions of years. The rock face is still exactly the same. But the story is completely different. The fashion has changed. Why? Well, 150 to 200 years ago, almost all geologists took their cue from the Bible, and the Bible said there had been a huge flood which destroyed the old earth, and what we can see now is the earth as a result of the flood. But, Around about that time, there appeared people on the scene, particularly uh, geologists like James Hutton, who started to say, no, the Earth's actually much older than the Bible says. Much older. Now, not all that many people took much notice of James Hutton. Um, they were still steeped in the Bible. And um, a lawyer, Charles Lyle, decided that his arguments weren't good enough and it needed some lawyer's skill to persuade people that it was true. Now, Lyle was a member of the Whig Party, as was Charles Darwin, and they were opposed to the Tories. Now, the Tories... Um, had a number of policies that they wanted promoting, and they pointed out that this was what the Bible asked for. It agreed with their policies, and the Whigs hated those policies, and they wanted to discredit the Bible so that the arguments of the Tories for their political stand could be weakened. Um, now, Lyle wanted to uh, come against this acceptance of the Bible, 
Um, and he had an idea. And he had a publisher friend called uh, George Scrope. And he wrote him a letter asking what he thought about publishing a book. And he said the object of this book will be to free science of the geology from Moses, to free the science of geology from Moses. Well, what is Moses' influence on geology? The flood. And he says he conceived an idea five or six years ago that if ever mosaic geology could be set down without giving offense, it would be an historical sketch. So they conspired together and they agreed that he would write this series of books called Principles of Geology and Scrope would publish it and he um, used his skill as a lawyer to put forward arguments. Now he wasn't a scientist and he put forward the principle on which all his geology would be based. It's called the uniformity principle. And the uniformity principle goes like this. No causes whatever have, from the earliest time to which we can look back to the present, ever acted but those now acting. And they have never acted with different degrees of energy to which they now exert. Now, of course, this is obviously not science, because science is based on observations and measurement, and nobody has any observations or measurements of the time he's talking about. We're looking back to the beginning of, um, of time. So this is speculation, but he was a very skillful lawyer. Now, Stephen Jay Gould was one of the most successful atheist evolutionists of the last century. He's now dead, but he was the real kingpin of evolution for quite a long time. And you wouldn't expect him to uh, come against Lyle, because Lyle made evolution possible with his millions of years. But he said, Charles Lyle was a lawyer by profession. And he relied on two bits of cunning to establish his uniformitarian version as the only true geology. In fact, the catastrophists were much more empirically minded than Lyle. The geologic record does seem to require catastrophes. Rocks are fractured and contorted. Whole faunas are wiped out. And to circumvent this literal appearance, Lyle imposed his imagination upon the evidence. Lyle was not the white knight of truth and fieldwork, but a purveyor of a fascinating and particular theory rooted in the steady state of time cycle, his uniformity principle. He tried by rhetoric to equate this substantive theory with rationality and rectitude. And the irony of history is that Lyle won. His version became a semi-official hagiography of geology, preached in textbooks to the present day. Professional historians know better, of course, 
but their messages really reach working geologists who seem to crave these simple and heroic stories. Surprising that even an evolutionist will admit the truth when he's not thinking about who might be quoting him. Well, Lyle did all sorts of things, and his, his whole aim was to find proof that geology shows a longer time scale than the Earth. And one of the things he did, he visited Niagara Falls in 1841. Now, these falls are 3,500 feet from the start of the erosion gorge. The local people that he asked said the falls are eroding back at about four feet per year. In fact, measurements show it's eroding back at about five feet per year. So that doesn't help him very much because that would mean the age of that gorge, even if things were always as they are now, would only be 7,000 years. So he wrote that they were eroding back at one foot per year. And he claimed this was proof that erosion had been going on for 35,000 years, which means the Bible must be wrong. It can't account for 35,000 years. And as Stephen Jay Gould pointed out, people accepted this. They were looking for these historic, heroic stories. Anything which would show the Bible to be not true. Why did they accept what Lyle says instead of accepting the real observations? They received not the love of truth that they might be saved, and for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. And they chose to believe Lyle's lies over and above the evidence that even Stephen Jay Gould says there really is this evidence in the geological record that it can't be true. Well, using this uniformity principle, Lyle said, Things have been going on just the same forever. And so he said, we can see that today deposition is going on in the oceans at one-eighth of an inch a century. That's three millimeters every hundred years. And he said, well, life has progressed on the earth in a, a series from simple to complex. So... If we find rocks with these simple fossils in, they must be very old. And any rocks with these fossils, we'll call them Cambrian. And if you go to the place in the, in the world where you can find the thickest layer of Cambrian rocks, well, that must be how thick it was in the beginning. Anywhere else where it's not as thick, it must have eroded away. So... At three millimeters a century, that means we've got a hundred million years. Then he goes to the next layer of rocks and he says, well, in here, any fossils in, like this 
If we find it rocks with these fossils, they must be the next period. They're the ore division. So we go to the place in the world where we find the thickest stack of rocks with these fossils. That must be the thickness it was everywhere. Anywhere else, it's thinner. It must have eroded away. That's another hundred million years. And so he went all the way through and he got an age of 600 million years. Now, there is nowhere in the world where the stack of rocks is anything like that thick. There is nowhere in the world where you get rocks having all these fossils from top to bottom. So there's nowhere in the world where you find this sequence of rocks. Most places in the world, the stack of rocks is actually quite small. And you usually find, well, one or two you find a rock uh, sequence from down here, and on top of that, one from up here, and one from there, so you don't get all the sequences at all. You just get two or three or four of these sequences. Sometimes you find rocks from up here with rocks from down here on top of them. Oh, but that doesn't matter. Some earth movement must have taken place so that something got pushed up and down. And the fact that they're often found in the wrong order, well, you know, this could happen. But the thing is that even when you find one and then a gap, one, a, one and a gap, there are very few places where the order of just those three or four layers is right. Now, this all suggests this is just a fraud and a construct that is a joke. But do the geologists look at that? They say, no, this is the truth. 600 million years. Well, the Bible certainly can't account for 600 million years, can it? So the Bible's disproved. But now, in the 1930s, a, um, an astronomer, an Australian astronomer called George Dodwell, was doing research on the tilt of the Earth's axis, which is changing. And he can only measure the tilt as it is now, but he looked back in history and he found that all over the world there are libraries, South America, China, Europe, everywhere, there are records of measurements of the tilt of the, arc, um, of the Earth's axis going back, right back to the early um, observations of Egypt. And he found that these observations fit on a smooth curve like this. They go all the way back to ancient Egypt. So the observations stop here, but they go all the way up, and when we get to about here, we have measurements there which were taken by Copernicus. And there, these measurements meet another curve. You can see this curve. It's called Newcomb's curve. Now, that is the curve that the scientists calculated that the Earth's axis tilt ought to take. And that curve is due to the gravitational attraction of the sun, the moon, and the planets on the Earth's equatorial bulge. 
And if that were the only source of the movement of the Earth's axis tilt, it ought to carry the, follow this curve. And from the time of Copernicus, it does. All the, the measurements since then fit both curves. But earlier than that, they do not fit this theoretical curve. They follow these curves down here. And you can see on this curve, there are some pretty well-known astronomers here. We've got Ptolemy. We've got um, Pythias. Uh, we've got Thales. And we go down to ancient um, Chinese. Um, uh, there are observations made by people all over the world, and they all follow this curve. From Copernicus onwards, Copernicus is this one, they all follow this, the same curve, and they fit on Newcomb's curve, but none of these fit on Newton's curve, they fit on this curve. So, George Dodwell found out how were these measurements taken, and they are all taken effectively with a very simple piece of apparatus. Now, this is a schematic diagram. In fact, the real things are often more sophisticated than this. But in principle, you just have a vertical pole on a flat piece of land. And at the winter solstice, you measure the length of the uh, shadow that the sun casts. And then at the summer solstice, you measure the length that the uh, the sun casts, and the tilt of the Earth's axis is twice the angle BXC. So you can you measure that, and divide that by two, and you've got the Earth's axis tilt. But he also noticed that these same measurements can give you the latitude because the latitude is the angle AXY, where Y is halfway between the shortest and the longest uh, shadow. So he had a check here on the accuracy. And he could see how accurate their tilt of the Earth's axis was just by checking the accuracy of the latitude of the place where they took the readings. And he found that most of them were very accurate. And he only accepted readings that were accurate to one minute of arc. And that will put the latitude to within about one mile on the Earth's surface. That's pretty good accuracy. Now, he also found that the ancient observers were confident they were doing things accurately and they believed their results. That doesn't usually happen among scientists today. They believe their theories. But uh, people like Manilius believed their uh, their observations. Now, his gnomon was actually the great obelisk of Rome. It's very tall, and on the top, he put a device for casting a very sharp shadow, and in the plaza around the great obelisk, he set in brass scales, so there would be no error in ever moving these scales, and he could take um, measurements very accurately, and his observations made him realize that the theories they'd been believing couldn't be true. They had believed the Earth is unchangeable. But he said these observations now for 30 years are not consistent. There has been some change 
in the universal earth by which has moved away from its center as I have detected myself and hereof also from other places. Everybody was finding out their theory about the earth being unchangeable wasn't true and something was changing. The earth's axis tilt was changing. And for them to be convinced of this, they must have had great confidence in the accuracy of their results. Now, when Dodwell put these together, he saw that they fitted on a curve called a logarithmic sine curve. The results actually finish down here in ancient Egypt. But this curve is a logarithmic sine curve, so he could continue it down to where it went vertical. Now, the log sine curve is the curve of recovery of a uh, top or gyroscope when it's been hit. And he said, hey, this looks as if the Earth has been hit by something like a meteorite. And how big a body would it have to be to change the the tilt from this to what it would expect it to be. And he found that should have been a body 200 kilometers in diameter. Now, he wanted to check on this, so he noted that many of the world's ancient monuments were erected to alignment with the sun. For example, Stonehenge. This was aligned so that the sacrifice was offered at dawn on the uh, summer solstice and that only shone in one day in the year and the archaeologist said well this was built about 400 BC. Now the scientists they um, w got interested also and said ah oh, we can work out from Newcomb's curve when this was, and they said, oh, this actually was, must have been built in 1900 BC. The archaeologists said, impossible. Well, there was the same kind of problem at Karnak in Egypt. Now, this temple was built for its alignment with the sun, and every year the, uh, the big ceremony took place uh, at the summer solstice. And what happened was that the sun got far enough north on the horizon to shine down a line of uh, sphinxes through the first pylon, through the second, through the third, then into the um, Holy of Holies, onto the altar, and then Pharaoh walked in, bathed in sunlight, and the sacrifice was offered on the altar. This happened once a year, and we know it happened because it's all written on the pillars. And you can see it is an impressive structure. The sun has to come all the way from the horizon between those uh, ram-headed sphinxes through these pylons, through with the ones behind, and shine on the altar behind. Now, what Dodwell found is when you look at the alignment of Stonehenge, that alignment is such that it is perfectly in agreement with 400 years. 400 years, the angle was dead right to shine in. The astronomers say 1,900 because they're working 
on Newcomb's curve, and that would mean 1,900. That curve is wrong. Now, as far as Carnac goes, the sun gets in at exactly the right age, 1570 BC. On Newcomb's curve, the sun could never shine in there because New Newcomb's curve never gets far enough down. Now, he looked at various other temples and found all was the same thing. The curve of observations agrees with reality. Newcomb's curve doesn't. Now, the idea that Dodwell had of the Earth being hit by a meteorite, that was poo-hooed, and uh, in fact, his work was squashed and hidden. But then, uh, about something like 30 years ago, Alvarez and R. Alvarez, a father and son team of geologists, found evidence for what there was absolutely, what they were absolutely sure was evidence for a meteorite. And everybody else agreed, well, the only way this could be explained is by a meteorite impact. Now, everybody realized that was going to wipe out Lyell's uniformity principle. So they made this meteorite as small as possible, and they said, well, it was 10 kilometers in diameter. Now, two top expert scientists at Caltech did some calculations on a 10 kilometer diameter meteorite. And they said, this meteorite would cause earthquakes millions of times more powerful than anything we have any record of. It would have thrown up hundreds of thousands of millions of tons of water into the atmosphere, which would have come pouring down as torrential rain. It would have evaporated hundreds of thousands of millions of tons of water, which would later come down as uh, con condensed and come down as rain. And it would have caused um, a tidal wave three miles high, five kilometers high, moving at the speed of sound, enveloping the entire Earth in 27 hours. Now, they presented these uh, observations and these calculations at a conference, and they said, you know, how on Earth could any land-dwelling creature survive this? Well, that wasn't a popular question, so it was never answered. But some artists have tried to uh, give an impression of this. Now, here you've got a, uh, an artist's impression of a wave very much smaller, but it's obviously going to do a lot of damage. Now, NASA, their artist, did uh, an, an artist impression. Well, at least you get the impression here of something five kilometers high, but you don't get any impression of how powerful it will be. Well. In about 1994, I think it was, I returned from a trip to Russia and in uh, Louis Buerta Airport, I saw the Praetorian News with a picture on the front. And the headline was, NASA now believes this meteorite was 200 kilometers in diameter. And the, NASA produced this uh, in impression Notice it's exactly the same size as Dodwell had calculated would be needed to make the Earth's axis tilt as it was. Now, of course, that wipes out all these millions of years. 
And it's all based on no causes whatever have from the earliest time which, which can look back till the present ever acted, but those now acting, they've never acted with different degrees of energy from what they now exert. And this, of course, disagrees with what um, the Bible says. It talks of him that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Now, in the geological record, there's lots of evidence for that. For example, if you see these tree trunks in this layer of rock, it's obvious that rock could not have been deposited three millimeters a century. This all had to happen very quickly. And this story about uh, fossils just dying and falling to the floor, floor of the ocean and slowly being covered up, you can see here a fossilized fish. Its muscles are at work, thrusting itself forward to engulf its dinner, and before it could even relax its muscles, it has been entombed in a huge mass of sediment which arrived so quickly it didn't even have time to relax its muscles. And then again, you find things like this. This is a piece of rock, and it comes from a quarry, from a town called London in Texas, and that quarry is full of pelecipod fossils like this, which are definitive for the Ordovician period. If you find fossils like this, this is Ordovician. That means it's 500 million years old. But in this piece of rock, you can see at the bottom, there is something sticking out of it. Now that turns out to be spruce. It's a piece of spruce wood. Now that's not supposed to have evolved until more than a hundred, about a hundred million years ago. Hundreds of millions after, of years after the Ordovician. And when this was broken open, you can see that that uh, piece of spruce is actually part of the handle of an iron hammer. And the only creature that has ever made iron hammers is man, and so you can see we've got evidence for this period, this period, and this period, and they're all in the same piece of evidence. They all happened at the same time. They all happened in Noah's flood. And this, well, it's interesting, the Bible talks about this. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3, There shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they are willingly ignorant. Of the, by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth, standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Now, it's interesting to compare Lyle's uniformity principle with what Peter says they will be saying in the last year, last days. They're exactly the same thing. No causes, no changes except what we see now. Things continue just as they were right from the beginning of the creation. 
So what they're saying is exactly the same. And the reason they're saying it, why did Lyle say it? To free the science of geology from Moses, to deny the flood. What does Peter say, the reason? for the, They are willingly ignorant that the world that then was, was overflowed with water and perished. Well, that story has uh, been washed out, and now people are having to believe, well, look, this here gives us actually a record of when the flood took place. When that meteorite hit, we follow this down, and we find it is just a little later than 2500 BC just over four and a half thousand years ago. And what's happened to all those millions of years? They've all been washed away in Noah's flood. Now, if we had listened to Euler, we would never have gone astray and been misled by those millions of years. He said, in our researches into the phenomena of the visible world in science, we are weaknesses, we are subject to weaknesses and inconsistencies so humiliating. They're absolute blunders. That a revelation with a capital R, the Bible, was absolutely necessary to us, and we ought to avail ourselves of it to the most powerful veneration. Well, if people had taken note of that, they wouldn't have wasted all these years on this stupid story of millions of years. Why? Because they didn't want to believe the Bible. And what did they achieve? Well, what happened to the flood? It turns out to have been a wonderful example and a wonderful proof to anyone who ever had any doubts. The Bible has prophecies from God which are being fulfilled in our own day and none of us have any excuse for not seeing the hand of God in it.